radicalization. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Europe is on its back. Now it's really impacting everything. Economic efficiencies, which means some more job opportunities. More stable investment has been the preferred asset clause. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra Hora. UK-based Shire will buy NPS for $5.2 billion to add rare disease drugs. Japan's government will propose a record budget of more than $800 billion for the next fiscal year as Premier Shinzo Abe seeks to maintain growth while curbing the heaviest debt burden in the industrial world. And Asian index futures slipped after wages sank U.S. stocks. Today on Money for Nothing, we kick off with the Church House Letters Investment Outlook for the year ahead. Our guests include Peter Churchhouse, U.S. correspondent Barry Wood, and Mike Lowy, who is the chief executive officer of SC Lowy. And he takes a look at uh, why high-yield junk bonds have uh, been forbidden by the Shanghai Bourse. And with us as guest host uh, this morning is Alex Wong of Ample Capital. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Juanita. Do you have a good weekend? Oh, sure, yes. (laughs) Okay. U.S. job growth increased briskly in December, 252,000 jobs were added last month, and the unemployment rate fell to a six and a half year, year low of 5.6%. That said, some of the decline reflected people leaving the workforce. Mohammed El Aryan, uh, of uh, who used to be with PIMCO, said that the short term wise, it's a strong labor report, it caps a strong year, and it's just a matter of time until wage growth actually catches up. Now, his ex PIMCO partner, Bill gross doesn't necessarily agree the creation of jobs is one thing the creation of wages is another and uh, as your report indicates you know minus 2.2 percent for the month and a 1.7 percent annual uh hourly uh increase which just isn't enough to sustain a a u.s economy the fact is is that the unemployment rate is coming down almost a a percent every year and in fact, we're at the point now of 5.6% unemployment rate where within six months or so, we're, we're, we are going to start to see these wages pick up. That was Bill Gross of Janus Capital, followed by Mark Kiesel of PIMCO. Other opinions? There are plenty out there. Here's Tim Kane of the Hoover Institution, followed by Nariman uh, Beverish, uh, who is the chief economist at IHS Global. I think this report tells us great news in the short run, and and we've seen that for the last year, but the the hole was so big. You know, that recession started exactly seven years ago uh, today, or this month, Mm -hmm. and um, the the damage was so bad. So I I think it's concerning long term, and we should really look not at monetary policy, but what are the fiscal policies that are pushing people out of the workforce, which leads to all that slack and leads to those lower wages? There are some downsides, as you, as you said earlier, and Peter was talking about earlier, to this number. The wage number, the decline, that's very troubling. And very importantly, the drop in the unemployment rate was almost entirely due to a 273,000 drop in the labor force. That's not good I news. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, I have to say, that gives me pause, and I, I'm guessing it's going to give the Fed pause as they start to sort of talk about when they're going to raise rates. This could delay it. You know, we're all saying probably they're going to raise rates in June. 
my guess is they may wait till the fall sometime. So there really are two issues here. One is that jobs appear to be abundant. But secondly, wages are not running away. Now, if wages were picking up, then arguably it would force the Fed to move earlier. But the report says that that is not the case. Rick Reeder is the CIO for Fundamental Fixed Income at BlackRock. And here's what he says about labor participation going down. You have an economy that's moving along quite nicely. You take the top line headline numbers, pretty impressive. You take the GDP data that we're getting, pretty impressive. Retail sales consumption. However, there are structural changes to this economy taking place that are pretty powerful. We think about technology impacting energy today. You think about technology impacting structural change in the, in the system. So you're creating what's very difficult. And think about what happened recently in terms of part-time hiring for retailing. A huge change in how retailing is taking place in this country. So there's a lot of aberrations. There's a lot of disinformation inflationary effects on an economy today. So you take energy as a, as a euphemism for what's happening in the system. We had horizontal fracking. You have this incredible growth of supply in the system. You have technology that's changing from data transmission to robotics to systems to software that's allowing you to operate your business more efficiently. A number of the routine jobs in the system are, go, are going away, but skilled workers are actually in significant demand. So you're changing the fabric of the economy. It means you can get aberrational data. means you can dull the deinflationary impact pulse that normally would happen with growth. And, and this today's number was the perfect uh, example of why that is taking place. Does it dull what the Fed, where the, where the Fed has to go? Monetary policy can't change, can't alter these structural forces. The Fed's done a terrific job. It's time to move on. And by the way, the ECB and the Bank of Japan are giving you an incredible window to do it because of the pressure it'll keep on, uh, on rates. Let's bring in Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent based in Washington. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Renita, and welcome back. Oh, thank you. It's great to be back and uh, back with you on a Monday. What can I say? Thank you. (laughs) Barry, so what do you make of uh, all of these comments, these various comments on the U.S. jobs report? Well, I do agree with your last uh, voice there. I think that there is a structural change underway. As Alan Greenspan used to say when he was Fed chief, it's very difficult to measure this when you're in the midst of it. And that's what's happening. It is troubling, but at the same time, you could flip this, Renita, to say that the United States is becoming very competitiveness, very competitive in industrial sector manufacturing. There's no doubt that unit labor costs in the United States are far lower than they are in Europe. They're rivaling those of other Asian countries, some emerging market countries, and that augurs very well for the kind of investment we're going to get into the manufacturing sector. So certainly that's good news for the U.S. How is that going to impact markets elsewhere in the world? Alex, what are your thoughts? Well, I think the uh, U.S. probably would not be too bad and uh, continue to uh, draw funds from outside. And uh, other markets, actually, I think um, would would be a little bit weak. I think looking in, uh, entering into 2015, actually, uh, we see some volatility in the first week. But I think uh, overall the, um, the the action in or the trend in the in the in the outside market in in the emerging market actually had still been uh, a little bit weak. Uh, Barry, we're uh, expected to see retail sales numbers out uh, this week. Do you think uh, those reports would actually support what you're saying about uh, industrial growth? Well, I'm not sure. I think that's uh, probably separate. 
I think that uh, markets are expecting a slight downtick in retail sales for December, but I think that's misleading because uh, auto sales were down, and that's a big component of the retail sales number. I think the important thing is that it was a very good Christmas. Retailers are finding that department store and online sales were up 3 to 5% this year this past Christmas. So that's a good sign. I think that uh, the retail sales number won't have a great impact on the market. Yet, uh, on an international level, we have a very strong dollar. So what do you make of that? Boy, we sure do, Renita. This is not yet troubling to United States exporters, but I think it's getting a lot of attention. You know, technically, we've gone through a lot of levels that would suggest the dollar is going to go considerably higher. I mean, you look at, for example, the euro is now at $1.18. It was at one thirty-six a year ago. The yen is at uh, 1.18, a year ago is at 1.04. So we've really seen a very strong appreciation of the dollar with no sign that that is going to diminish. Uh, Alex, what do you make of that? Well, I think the dollar would continue to strengthen later on, despite uh, we, despite the fact that we just seen a top and uh, and uh, and retracement uh, triggered by the the unemployment unemployment report last week. I think. Uh, if you look at the overall picture, the um, Europe and Japan will continue to do their easing. So I think that this this uh, dollar trend would not would not change. Now, Barry, uh, looking sort of at things from a macro point of view, you've got uh, you know worrisome situation in other parts of the world, defaults perhaps, uh, Greece, Russia. You've got central banks moving in opposite directions in uh, various parts of the world. Uh, what's your view on that? I agree with what you just said. I think that um, volatility is here for a while. Perhaps I disagree with Alex on that one. I do think that uh, there is a warning sign somewhere in all these numbers. I'm particularly concerned about the 10-year U.S. Treasury dipping below 2%. We're at 1.95. That's almost a full percentage point down in the last 12 months. I think that tells us something. Money is moving back into the United States. There's a general fear of the emerging market economies that they're sort of having their hands tied on monetary policy. That affects certainly South Africa, India, Brazil, and we know about Russia. So I think there are some worrying signs. But despite all of that, Renita, the U.S. economy looks exceedingly strong. All right, Barry. Uh, thanks so much for joining us this morning. That is Barry Wood. He is RTHK's international economics correspondent based in Washington. A quick look at the numbers uh, this morning. The Australia's ASX index is a down 23 points to 5,416. And Seoul's Kospi is down 5 points to 1,919. In currencies, one euro currently buys you, as Barry said earlier, $1.18. One U.S. dollar is... Uh, 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 currently worth 118 yen, and the one pound sterling will buy you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 77 cents. The Transport Department has announced that due to police open fire, the lanes uh, number two and three of Chatham Road South, Yamate, bound near Hong Kong Polytech University, are closed to all traffic. Uh, lane numbers one and four are still available to motorists. 
Well, uh, we will uh, definitely be back uh, with Peter Churchhouse to talk uh, about a little bit more about some of those trends. But let's like, take a look at local news, tech news, I should say, uh, before we get to local news. Um, Apple has changed the prices of software applications from Canada to Europe last week in one of the company's broadest global responses to currency fluctuations in recent years. With the U.S. dollar rising, Apple told software makers that it's increasing its app prices because of foreign exchange rates and taxes. Nothing so far in this part of the world, but always good to stay tuned. Also in tech news here, it appears that Chinese tech stocks listed abroad have been left out of the eight-month rally back in the mainland. And that's about to change, according to U.S. Global Investors Incorporated and Crane Funds Advisors, who predict that it's time for Tencent and Baidu to gain following Shanghai Composite's 53% surge last year. Alex, what do you make of that? Do you agree? Oh, yeah. Uh, actually, uh, Baidu and, and Tencent already uh, risen a little bit last week. Uh, they had been lagging behind too much. And I think uh, uh, we would see reversal of unfold because um, last week uh, we saw some extreme volatility in the Asian market and people probably would start to worry because uh, if you look at the comparison between A and H, Asia and XS, actually Asia are overvalued by at least 30%. And then the momentum right now uh, have been gone. So I think uh, that would trigger some profit taking in Asia. And then uh, people probably would relocate their fund, re- re- relocating their fund to uh, technology stocks like Tencent and Baidu because they, they have been okay. Their, their weaknesses the last month actually was uh, triggered by uh, switching activities only. So um, now we are seeing the reversal of trend. So probably we will see pick up in, 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 in them. Now that's certainly good news. One of one of the events that is on the cards for this week is the chief executive's annual policy address. And uh, w- what's unusual about this one is it's it's the first time uh, he will make a policy address in the aftermath of the umbrella movement. Um, polls are showing sort of lower confidence uh, in the public's uh, ability, perhaps, to trust him and uh, his policy. Will that affect stocks at all? Oh, I think uh, if you talk about that, probably the impact would be on local properties. But uh, the restructuring of uh, uh, Kong Group actually would provide support. So um, that probably would cancel out some effects, I think. All right. Okay. Well, we'll be back to talk uh, more about Peter Churchhouse's outlook for this year. That is right after this message. The chief executive will deliver his policy address in the Legislative Council on January 14th. The full text will be released simultaneously on the website www.policyaddress.gov.hk. Copies of the full text and a leaflet will be available at public inquiry service centres of district offices and at the footbridge entrance to the central government offices at Tamar that afternoon. You will also be able to collect the leaflet at major MTR stations, shopping centres and other selected locations. You break down. 
The time is now 8.18 a.m. and market commentators are warning investors away from oil-related investments. This is amid concerns that black gold could continue its slide. Now, while going against the crowd may seem risky, there could be big profits in a contrarian bet on energy. Some forecasts are saying that uh, oil might uh, trade closer to $90 per barrel by the end of the year. And the idea is among Peter Churchhouse's top predictions for the year. Peter is the editor of the Church House Letter, and he joins us in the studio now. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Rivia. So, Peter, tell us about your top predictions for this year, starting with energy. Well, uh, everybody's always tempted to have lots of predictions at the beginning of the year or the end of the the old year, uh, and we see much of the same sort of stuff trotted out. Uh, But quite frankly, uh, when we look at oil, uh, most of the forecasters last year got it well wrong. Uh, Out of all the forecasters in June, on Bloomberg, 35 forecasters, uh, only five uh, expected oil to dip below $100 by the end of 2014. So I, I don't feel too bad about having a contrarian view on oil. And it's, We all know the benefits of, of lower oil prices to consumers. It has a positive impact on GDP for consumer countries and so on. But what I think we've got to realize is that lower oil prices at this kind of level bring a lot of, uh, I think, substantial financial and political risks to the world, which I think ultimately towards the middle or the end of this year are going to outweigh the positive effects of cheap oil. And there are three things here. Uh, firstly, it's going to produce a lot of marginal producers of oil uh, to the wall, uh, and I, I would uh, single out uh, U.S. and Canada in particular, and possibly countries like Brazil, Nigeria, and also, of course, Russia. Secondly, what happens about all of the, the lending that's gone into the oil industry uh, in the recent years, and a lot of these uh, smaller oil producers uh, are, are, are steeped in debt. Uh, so I, I think the last thing the world needs now is another financial crisis, which oil at, at fifty, sixty dollars could bring us, uh, and if that happens, we could see uh, something in the region of one hundred and fifty billion dollars of uh, of, of uh, loans in default and CDSs in default uh, in in the U.S. alone, let alone other countries. So, uh, I, I think the last thing the central banks and the politicians around the world want to see is a financial crisis, which oil could potentially bring. So, I think that's going to lead to some sort of pressure on countries like Saudi to cut production at some point later in the year, just as they did ultimately in 1986 during the last uh, downturn in oil prices. So I I would think we're going to be pushing oil prices back towards $80, $90 uh, before the end of this year would be my guess. So uh, fair enough, and what you're saying makes uh, perfect sense. So the question is, why is it going to take uh, Saudi until later in the year to sort of wake up and take note and, and change things rather than sooner? Well, quite frankly, Saudi has always, over decades, uh, has focused its attention on market share, not price. Uh, at some point, however, uh, even in the 86 uh, tumble in oil prices, uh, which quite frankly, the 86 tumble is we're almost at the same level uh, in terms of price decline as we saw in 1986. And ultimately, Saudi did succumb. I think at the, in the short term, the, the market share issue is important. They want to stick it to the cheap 
low-cost oil shale uh, shale producers in the U.S. They want to they make a point to countries like Iran and perhaps even some other countries like Venezuela. Uh, so I think there's a political point that uh, these these guys are making here. But at some point they'll do what they did in '86 and hint at production cuts, which will be perhaps the turning point. Who knows when that's going to be? But I would suggest it's probably uh, before the end of the third quarter. So, Alex, uh, Peter is suggesting that Brent will be back up at about $90 a barrel by the end of the year. Is that correct, Peter? Peter? Uh, so I think somewhere in the 80 to 90 is a, is a pretty good uh, uh, guesstimate. But, you know, uh, oil is a very politically driven uh, subject, so uh, who knows what the politicians are going to think. But that would be my, my sort of uh, uh, anti-consensus bet. Okay, so Alex, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that makes sense, actually, because right now uh, the fall was uh, supported by the uh, inaction of uh, Saudi. So um, that's, that's why uh, we are seeing continued fall in, in oil. Um, but so we are we are, we are quite near the the the, the, the big supports at around thirty eight uh, for the New York uh, quote. So so we are not too far away from the uh, major support level. So that we should not be too bearish on on oil prices at this level because we are not too far away from the bottom. And then uh, the four uh, is uh, supported by a political um, decision only. So uh, that's why um, as a trader we would not be uh, tracing the oil decay at this level now. So should we be rushing to buy energy stocks now, Peter? Uh, my, I think we're possibly a bit early, uh, but um, I, I would think at some point before the, the end of the first half, uh, one might want to be looking at perhaps some ETFs on some of the super major uh, oil producers. If we think back again to 85, 86, the oil stocks uh, started to outperform about three or four months before the oil price bottomed. Uh, and we see that very often. Stock markets are pretty good at uh, discounting or an, uh, anticipating uh, changes in uh, commodity prices. So what about U.S. interest rates? Now, this is the, the, the big question on everyone's uh, uh, mind. <laughs> yeah, I, I, again, I think the consensus view very much is that rates are going to uh, rise sooner rather than later. Uh, but when I look around the world right now uh, and I see, if you look at the, th- the four major economic blocks, uh, Europe's in a mess, Japan is struggling, uh, China is in slowdown mode, all of those markets are going to be looking at easing monetary policy. The only one that's doing reasonable well as the US. And as some of your, of your commentators uh, remarked earlier, the big missing ingredient in the US recovery is wage recovery. Uh, that's just simply not happening. So, And, and you're seeing inflation dipping uh, below 2% again, heading not into deflation, but certainly into disinflation. So I, I don't think there's a lot of inflationary pressure uh, for, the pe- for the Fed to raise interest rates. And so my guess is that uh, the Fed uh, will be raising rate later rather than earlier. And if we think about it, it was only a few months ago uh, that all the commentators were basically talking about a 3% 10-year uh, government bond yield. Uh, we're now around 2 or just under 2 in the US. So uh, people got that well wrong also. All right. One more prediction before we wrap up uh, the segment. Japan. 
Japan? Uh, again, uh, Japan, I think, has been uh, uh, sort of it, – it's gone off the radar screens of, of many investors in the last uh, three or four months. Everybody got very enthusiastic when uh, Arbonomics was first announced in late 2012, 2013. Everybody rushed in uh, and, and did very well for a period of time. But, but suddenly uh, nobody's talking about Japan. If you look at the media reports over the last few months, there's been hardly anything written about Japan. And there's a lot of skepticism. But my, my sense here, there is a number of reasons that why Japan might uh, actually surprise to the upside. Firstly, as a, as a market, it's very cheap. It's way cheaper than the U.S. right now at about 14 and a half times earnings versus 16, 16 and a half in the U.S. Uh, it's almost half the price to book value ratio that you see in the U.S. Uh, corporate earnings are the highest ever. Uh, the government policies, we're looking at another 25 billion uh, going into stimulus. So there's a lot of things here which I think could turn this market to the upside. All right. Well, more on Japan as it releases its budget very soon. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. That is Peter Churchhouse, editor of the Churchhouse Letter. The Shanghai Stock Exchange has banned individuals from investing in bonds privately issued by small and medium-sized enterprises, the latest in a series of steps to tighten regulatory control of the high-yield, high-risk fixed-income market. The ban also bars institutions from selling individual investors any product bond, any, any product uh, containing bonds issued by SMEs, widely known in the industry as junk bonds. Michael Lowy is the chief executive officer at the Hong Kong-based C. Lowy, an independent fixed income specialist. He joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Reina. Uh, Michelle, can you take us through why this is happening? Why has the Shanghai Stock Exchange banned individuals from investing in junk bonds? Well, investing in, uh, in the high-yield market uh, requires uh, a certain level of, of credit skills that and analytical skills that's generally not um, available to the wider public. And while in a very robust market, uh, you know, there's a lot of liquidity, risks are limited, and the losses for the individuals uh, are, are unlikely to rise, uh, we've now entered in a very different phase in the market. And as a result, uh, it's, it's certainly not prudent for uh, individual investors to uh, to participate to the high yield market, and and regulator is, is well aware of that, and uh, and is trying to uh, to protect uh, private investors. So, what about the investors who already own such bonds? Well, the, 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 there is some liquidity for them to exit. I mean, at Esilawi, that's what we do. We provide uh, markets. Uh, for uh, fixed income. So, you know, you're not talking about publicly listed instruments, but over-the-counter instruments for which, for which a few market makers uh, are allowing uh, some, some liquidity. So there is a possibility for them to exit. And, and, and certainly, uh, when you look at the Chinese market and the um, uncertainty that, that, that surround many of the corporates that have grown businesses there, uh, I don't think that uh, you are getting paid for the risk you are taking. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Michelle Lowy. He is the Chief Executive Officer of SC Lowy. And uh, here we are, almost uh, time to wrap up the show. Alex, any parting thoughts uh, this morning before we exit? Well, I think uh, we probably will see some reversal of trend uh, we have seen in December. So that means that we are probably seeing uh, some exit in China stocks, but uh, back to Hong Kong and back to those uh, high growth uh, names like uh, Tencent. I think uh, the Asia market probably would be near correction already. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning as guest host on a Monday. That is Alex Wong of Ample Capital. A quick look at the numbers before we close the show. Australia's ASX index is down 24 points to 5,416. Sol's down six points to 1,918. Brent crude oil is currently at $49.47, just below the $50 mark. And gold is at $1,225.10 per ounce. This is Renita Malhotra-Hura wrapping up for Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It will be cloudy with occasional rain. Temperatures will linger around 16 degrees during the day. Currently, the temperature is also 16 degrees and the relative humidity is 70%. And now it's time for the half-hour news with Samantha Butler. Police are investigating firebomb attacks on the home of media tycoon Jimmy Lai and the offices of his next media group. Mr Lai, founder of Apple Daily Newspaper, has become a target recently over his support for the pro-democracy Occupy movement. Janice Wong reports. It was just after one this morning when two flare-like objects were thrown at the entrance gate of the next media office in Chengguano. The fire was quickly put out by security staff before a report was made to the police. No one was injured. At around the same time, a masked man threw a flare at the home of Jimmy Lai, the former chairman of the next media group. Footage from a security camera showed the man fleeing in a private vehicle after the attack. Mr. Lai has stepped down as chairman and executive director of Next Media after being arrested when police cleared the Admiralty protest site last month. Police have fired a warning shot at a car that avoided a police roadblock on Chatham Road South near the Hong Kong Polytechnic University this morning. An injured officer has been taken to Queen Elizabeth Hospital. It's not known how he was injured. Two lanes of Chatham Road South heading towards Yaomate have been closed. There are Apple Daily newspapers scattered everywhere. Police are investigating whether there's any link to the attacks this morning against the next media group which owns Apple Daily. More than three million people have marched through Paris and other French cities in a show of unity after last week's deadly attacks by Islamist extremists. Officials